For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. And spoke plainly about the message of Christ. He didn't want to try to accommodate their pride. He took a different approach by just simply telling them about Christ and him crucified. And so, as we saw earlier in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he was taking a lot of heat. Because he wasn't quite as eloquent, or at least he didn't come off as eloquent as some of these sophists who would come through town. And so they were judging him for that. Also, they were accusing him of proclaiming Christ for gain. That, you know, he was just one of these sophists who would come into town. You know, typically these sophists would teach in an academic setting and the people who are listening, the audience would have to pay this individual for their speaking engagement. And so they were putting him in that box and saying, he's just like one of those sophists who are out there trying to make money off of this new teaching about this guy named Jesus Christ, who we've never even heard of. And so Paul was very careful to show that he was very, he was different from these sophists, you know, in first Corinthians chapter nine, He tells us that he didn't receive any money from them, even though he could have taken it. Uh, And that was to demonstrate that he wasn't doing this just for money. Also, they were wondering whether or not they should even listen to him because maybe he didn't have apostolic authority. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul makes his case for apostleship saying, I do have authority to speak in this way and God has actually called me to do this. And so they were raising questions about whether he was qualified to speak in this manner. Also, they were saying that he was just too fanatical. We're going to see that in our passage. They were just like, you know, it's okay to to follow God to a certain extent, but I mean, you just cannot take it this far. And so they were criticizing Paul for being fanatical. So when we talk about unrighteous judgment, you know, there are a number of things that would fall into the category of unrighteous judgment. I think, first of all, judging people's motives. You know, where you are trying to reconstruct somebody's thinking based on your understanding. Paul already said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that who can know the thinking or mind of man except for the spirit of man within him? In other words, it's presumptuous for us to think that we can, we can adequately or accurately determine what someone's motives are. That's just impossible. We're not in their head. And to do so is very arrogant. Um, you know, you hear sometimes people say stuff like, yeah, he just uh, prays in these group settings because he just loves the sound of his own voice something really cynical like that. And you're just like, well, how do you know that? What, what, what makes you think that you understand what drives him to do this? And so you see this a lot of times within a spiritual community like this, as loving as people are, you know, we're, we're uh, fallen people who have problems just like anybody else. And we're subject to this unrighteous judgment. You know, he says in verse 5, he said God, that God will bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. You know, we don't need to go around trying to bust people out for their questionable motives in doing things. We can trust that God is the one who 
will adjudicate that and will show very clearly uh, whether somebody has uh, messed up motives and what they're doing in their service to God. Also, judging our own motives happens to be unrighteous. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So he's saying, you know, I, I don't go around uh, looking at myself constantly and trying to figure out, trying to dissect my motives all the time. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't have bad motives. It just means that it's unhealthy to do that. It's, it's actually wrong to just sit there and, and churn about, why, why did I do that? Was that done out of pure love and affection for Christ? I mean, we talked about that last week where it's really difficult. You know, you take one act of service and you start to, start to parse it out into little pieces to figure out, okay, how much of this was because I love this person and because I love God and how much of this is because I want recognition? That's a maddening exercise anytime you engage in that because it becomes very confusing. And the reason why Paul probably says that we shouldn't do this is because it paralyzes us. You know, when we get to the point where we say to ourselves, I'm just not going to serve unless I know that my, mo mo my motives are pure here, then it's going to lead to inaction. And so I think it's okay for us to come to God and say, you know, I, I don't know what my motives are here, but if there are bad motives, I, I just want you to reveal those to me. And God is faithful in his time to show us when we have bad motives driving us in our service. Finally, you have self-righteous judgment. Oh, yeah. Um, Jesus talked a lot about this. You know, uh, we see, for example, in, um, not Romans 2. Oh, I don't have that passage. Well, anyway, in uh, Matthew 7, he says, uh, by the measure that you judge another, you will be uh, judged by that same measure. In uh, Matthew 7, verse 1 and 2. And so Jesus says, you know, can you really live by that standard where you're judging somebody else? Because by that same measurement, by that same standard, you yourself will be judged. Think about the Jewish Christians in Rome who were engaged in self-righteous judgment, Paul calls them out in his letter in Romans 2, verse 2. He says, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've had this experience before where, you know, I watch somebody do something and I just sit there like, God, I can't believe he did that again. And, uh, and just as I'm saying that to myself, it occurs to me, wait a second, I just did the same thing last week. <laughs> and that, that kind of stings my pride. I'm like, man, that's not cool, you know? That's, that's hypocrisy. That's unrighteous judgment. And, you know, I'm sure some of you, you know, have had that experience. And if you can't relate to what I'm talking about, then that just proves that you are a self-righteous judger. So welcome to the club. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. He says, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with someone uh, who commend themselves. 
when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. So, you know, when we're endlessly trying to, you know, size ourselves up against other people, comparing ourselves with another, jockeying for position, a lot of times, you know, that's us trying to show that we're better than someone else. And yet, we're not qualified to make those kind of judgments. You know, a lot of times, when we're doing something right and someone else is doing something wrong, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's not that we're a better person. A lot of times, you know, people are coming into their relationship with God with a lot of deficiencies. And so, you know, maybe you had to overcome less than that person. And so it's not right for us to put ourselves in a position where we're, you know, looking down our nose at someone else and comparing ourselves to other people. He says in verse 5, he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Of course, he's referring to what we talked about earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, where there will be this day where God will actually evaluate our work for him and that as a result, we will receive praise from God and rewards. Now he says, don't judge anything before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. So he's saying, God's the one who's going to judge. And, uh, you know, that's popular today. You hear this a lot. Where people, you know, for example, Tupac coined that famous uh, phrase, you know, only God can judge me. And people use that to say, well, you know, nobody's really in a position to judge me for the things that I'm doing. But that raises a question. Why are we listening to Tupac? <laughs> what, what qualifies him to, to speak or wh why would we listen to him? Um, you know... Paul here isn't saying that we should never judge. He's saying that we should not engage in unrighteous judgment. At times, God actually calls on us to pass righteous judgment. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 15 and 16, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. So he's saying there are going to be people coming in trying to, to tell you things that, that tickle your ears, things that you want to hear. And these people are trying to lead you astray from your faith. And so it's important for you to be able to discern right from wrong, truth from falsehood. And to do so, you need to understand his written word, God's tr uh, truth in the Bible. And so to remain ignorant and, and to hear something that isn't in line with what God says. And to simply swallow that whole is a real problem according to God. Or what about 1 Corinthians 5 verse 3, where Paul says, I've already passed judgment on the one who did this thing, just as if I were present. And in the context, he's talking about a really heinous act of immorality involving this guy and his mom, or maybe stepmom, and Paul is just like, I can't believe you guys are just sitting around and congratulating this guy and saying, oh, you know, you couldn't really help it. Um, it's not really that big of a deal. Paul was like, no, it's a real problem. And we need to fix this. You need to demonstrate righteous judgment in this case. And so 
I think we need to be able to evaluate for ourselves, you know, are we engaged in unrighteous judgment? And if so, we need to take that before God and realize that that's wrong. He goes on in verse 6, Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go, go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. So really at the heart of this problem that they were having was pride. You know, there were these factions that were arising, some claiming to be of the party of Paul, others saying that they were of Apollos. And Paul was saying, you know, really at the heart of this is pride, the desire for recognition, the desire for praise, the desire to show superiority over another. And he says, what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And what did you receive? Uh, and, why, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Um, this really, I think, stands as a major critique of our pride. You know, when you think about your life, you, know, you may say, I worked hard from what I have. You know, I, I didn't just earn my money or my wealth. Uh, you know, I didn't just inherit that. I earned it with my hard work. And so, you know, we can take pride from that. You know, because nobody just handed us something. And yet, the question we have to ask ourselves is, where did we get our intelligence? Where did we get our drive that made us so successful that we could earn this money? Did we earn those things? Um, what about the fact that we were born in a rich nation where we have tons of opportunities access to higher education, whereas most people in the third world, they don't have those opportunities. You mean to tell me that you were, you were so sweet that you decided to be born in this country with all of these opportunities? You know, what, what about our athletic ability? What about our good looks? Did we work hard to get those things? You know, when you think about it, whatever we say that we worked hard to get, what we're really saying is we took the opportunities, the talents, the gifts, everything that God has given us, and we use those well. But at the heart of it, we can't really claim that we, you know, what we have is ours or that we earn that. At its root, all of those things were given to us by God. And so this question, this stinging rhetorical question that Paul asks it represents God's ultimate critique on human pride. What do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer is nothing, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. He says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might become kings with you. Uh, I mean, the, the sarcasm is just dripping off of his lips. I love the fact that you know, Paul adds this kind of stuff in here. He says, you have all that you want. Or in other translations, you've already been filled. You're self-satisfied. You're comfortable with your life. You think that you've arrived. And so you have become spiritually mediocre, lackluster. He says, you've already become rich. You've gained wealth. God has blessed you. 
And you know, a lot of times wealth, even though it makes our life comfortable, even though it gives us access to buy the things that we want, a lot of times it can numb us to our spiritual need. A lot of times it can anesthetize us to the point where uh, we don't feel that spiritual hunger anymore. Look at what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. In Revelation 3, verse 15 through 17, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot or cold. He says, I wish that you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say that I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. That's a rough uh, condition to be in, right? Think that you're, everything's all right, but you're sitting there buck naked. I mean, think about, think about what Jesus says here. I mean, he uses this really vivid uh, language. He says, I just would rather spit you out of my mouth. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of drinking something lukewarm. I mean, it's gross, right? I remember uh, one time my buddy, he was uh, hanging out over at my friend's house, and he was drinking, you know, Coca-Cola out of a mug. And so he uh, sat it down and went to the bathroom, and then he sat in a different spot in the house and picked up a similar-looking mug and without looking at it, decided he was going to take a drink. Now, what he didn't know was this. The guy sitting there before him had filled it up with water and was spitting dip juice into the cup. And so without looking, he just takes a huge gulp of it. And um, needless to say, it wasn't good, right? Uh, he didn't have a good reaction. I'll, I'll spare you all the brown, chunky details. <laughs> But, you know, that's the way that God views sort of a lukewarm faith. He's just like, you know, I, I wish that you would be struggling. I wish that you would, you know, be wrestling with your faith to try to, try to hang on rather than just being complacent, lukewarm, just sitting around doing nothing. You know, that's, that's the way that these Corinthians were acting. They were lukewarm in their faith. They had lost their spiritual hunger. They lost their spiritual edge. He says, and you've become kings and that without us. Not that they literally became kings, but they were acting like they, they were some sort of big deal. Probably within these factions, you know, there were some leaders who spoke on behalf of Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these representatives. And so they, they were happy to be in a position of authority. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Uh, this word spectacle in Greek, theatron, this was used of the captives, those who are prisoners of war who would be ushered in during a triumphal entry. And uh, at the end of the procession, they would often face death and torture. You know, we know a decent amount about this procession. A lot of times, whenever a general would go out to war in the Roman Empire, 
if they had a decisive battle either by land or sea and killed more, uh, more than 5,000 of their enemy, they were granted what was called a Roman entry. And so this procession would start at the city gate and would often last an entire day. And there was a specific order to this procession. You would have the magistrates and the senators at the front of the group. Then behind them, you would have the spoils of war, the booty, which was, you know, the stuff that they got from the cities that they ransacked. And then after that, you would have the slaves and also the captors, people who were imprisoned because of the war. And often as they would walk through, uh, people would, would hurl rotten food and excrement at them to disrespect them. They would, they would you know, uh, say uh, different mocking things at them as they went through. And then finally, at the very end, you would have the general who would have a laurel wreath in one hand or branch and a scepter in the other, you know, riding a, a large white charger through the streets. And so Paul was trying to get his Corinthian audience to sort of envision this triumphal entry. He's like, we are like those guys at the end of the procession who face shame, headed for death, condemned men. While you guys, you, you guys are in the front. You think you're sweet. We wish we were like you guys because you guys have arrived, unlike us, who are shamed. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us, um, he's, or in verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. He's like, man, we're just, we just have given ourselves completely to Christ. And obviously we've just lost control. Whereas you guys, you know, you're showing more balance in your life than we are. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're probably taking things a little too far. By the world standards, we're completely crazy for living our lives this way. But you guys, you're well respected. You're not experiencing the same level of shame that we have to. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We even work hard with our own hands. You know, he's like, we can't even get a decent meal around here. He says, you know, we're, we're, we're dressed in rags. We're not dressed in the, the newest, nicest clothing that's in style. We don't even own a home. We're homeless most of the time. You know, we don't own property. By the world standards, we're complete losers compared to you guys. And we have to work hard with our own hands. You know, we're, we're working class people having to sew tents in order to survive, unlike you guys. He says, when we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we ask kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Again, Paul, he's just not afraid to use terms that just would uh, shock his audience. He's like, you know, we are like the off-scouring on the streets, you know, in the ancient world, often people would have to, to take, you know, like a snow shovel and scrape the stone streets because in a day of animal transport, you know, you would often have droppings all over, all over the ground. And so what you would do is you would scrape up 
the excrement off of the ground and pile it up into, you know, a little corner of the street there. And he's like, that's us. We're, we're, the, we're the refuse. We're the scum of the earth. People hate us. Now you might think to yourself, well, you know, Paul, he probably was one of those guys who had nothing better to do with his life. You know, a lot of people who are religious fanatics, they do that because they have no place in society. And so they turn to religion. You know, they try to, they try to gain a following among people who are lower class, uneducated. And yet that could not be said of Paul. Actually, it would be totally the opposite of what Paul was. Paul actually gives us some autobiographical information in Philippians 3 about himself. He says in verse 4 through 6, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he goes through his credentials, his, his achievements. He says, look, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which you're like, man, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but what he was saying was, to my Jewish audience, I am part of God's covenant promises. I'm one of his people. I didn't get converted into Judaism. I was born into this, which would have carried a lot of credibility to these people. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which, you know, the tribe of Judah was the kingly line, but the tribe of Benjamin produced the very first king, King Saul, from which he derived his name, Paul. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, probably talking about his ability to speak Hebrew. At the time, Hebrew was actually a dead language, and most, most Jews spoke Aramaic or Greek. And he said, no, I'm actually fluent in Hebrew. And he says, on top of that, I was actually a Pharisee. You know, we read about these guys in the Gospels, but this was a fraternity of 6,000 men in Israel. And these guys lived their lives to follow the law to, to the most minute detail. All 613 Old Testament laws. And so these guys were preoccupied with trying to be righteous, morally good people. And he says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Not that he was literally perfect, but that he achieved his goal. You know, most people uh, in the world today wouldn't even come close to Paul in terms of being a good person. And so Paul says, look at all my credentials. You know, in addition to that, he was an incredible scholar. He mentions in the book of Acts that he was trained under Gamaliel, which, you know, in the ancient world, Gamaliel was regarded as one of the great Jewish scholars of his day. And so this would be the equivalent of getting, you know, a PhD at Harvard or Cambridge University. Paul was an incredibly learned man. Not to mention, he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin based on Acts chapter 7, which was the ruling, governing body in Israel. So Paul, I mean, by all accounts, had everything going for him. And yet, he says this in verse 7 through 9. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. 
Again, he says, I consider them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That word there, rubbish, it's a pretty weak translation. That's the Greek word skubalon, um, which literally means human excrement. So Paul was using some profane words in his letters. And essentially he was saying, you know, all of these things, all of these accomplishments in my life, my credentials, by comparison to what I have in Christ, I consider that to be floating human turds. It's like, it's just human excrement. I don't even care about those things. Because when you weigh the value of eternal things, namely a relationship with God, which gives us access to heaven, not to mention that we can, we can shape the landscape of eternity through our work here on earth. When you compare that opportunity, those things that God has given to us, compared to all of these things that I've done in my life prior to knowing Christ, that's meaningless. Not that they're unimportant, but by comparison to these things that God has given, they're meaningless. So Paul had his values right. He understood the things that would endure on into eternity, and he oriented his life around that. He says, I'm not writing this, of course, to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you have many fathers. You, have not, you do not have many fathers in Christ Je uh, because I become your father through the gospel. So apparently he had this authority because he led many of them to Christ. And he says, you know, uh, I'm speaking to you as a father in Christ. And he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I mean, you know, the Corinthians were prudent in their calculation about giving their lives over to Christ. And Paul was totally radical. And they were just like, I don't know if I want to go that far. And Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. And, uh, you know, I think today in our culture, we look at somebody like Paul and we think, this guy's kind of gone off the rails. You know, I'm glad that there are people out there like Paul who have devoted their lives to following God. I'm glad that there are people who want to serve God with all their lives, but that's just not me. You know, I, I don't know if I want to go that far. And yet Paul says, be imitators of me. He wasn't saying that to just, you know, special people. He was saying that to everyone who's a follower of Christ. You know, in our culture today, most people would say, you know, it's okay if you go to church once in a while, but, you know, just, just make sure not to get carried away with it. Or, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of Jesus in your life, but, you know, you need some balance. You don't want to become extreme, right? Uh, you have a lot of priorities in your life, and so you, you can go to church, you know, on Sunday morning and, and read the Bible occasionally, but don't let it consume you. You don't want to be a religious fanatic, right? But, uh, you know, 
how would most people respond if they heard someone say this? I've decided to devote myself to becoming a doctor. I've decided that I am going to carve out the next eight years of my life and I'm going to devote it completely to becoming a doctor, which entails that, you know, I'm probably going to have little to no time for people because, uh, you know, with residency and also with med school, I'm just going to be so busy doing that that I'm not going to have time really for anything else. Not to mention, you know, I'm going to have to probably sacrifice a lot of money. You know, I probably would end up with a $300,000 loan in order to do this. And so my life is going to radically change as a result of trying to become a doctor. And you know what most people in our culture would say if somebody said that to them? They'd be like, yeah, that's awesome. Good job. I love that commitment. Do something with your life, right? Be like, oh, that's so amazing. I'm so glad to have a doctor in my, in my family. Or, you know, somebody says, I've decided to devote myself to making it in the Olympics. I've decided that from the age of six to the time I'm 22, that I'm going to devote six hours a day to ice dancing. <laughs> Something that I'm never going to use ever again in my life once I'm done with it. You know, what that entails is I'm going to have to probably leave my school. I'm probably going to have to get a tutor so that I could uh, focus exclusively on ice dancing. And um, with the hope that I'm going to be able to make it into the Olympics. And, you know, I probably will suffer some injuries, uh, but I'm going to persevere through that because to have that chance to be there, that's amazing. Now, will that guarantee that, that I'm going to make it to the Olympics? Probably not. Will that guarantee that I'll get a medal in the Olympics? Unlikely. And yet, you know, most people, when they hear somebody say that, they're like, oh, that's just so heartwarming. It just brings tears to my eyes that you would want to devote yourself to something so amazing as ice dancing. <laughs> You know, we, we wouldn't bat an eye if somebody said, I want to devote my entire life to these things, which in and of themselves, aren't, those aren't bad things. And yet, when somebody says, I've decided to devote my, uh, you know, a couple nights a week to spiritual growth and to serving God, they're just like, how long is that going to last? <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want to get, <laughs> you got a lot of important things going on in your life. You don't want to, you don't want to go overboard now right? Let's make sure that you maintain that, that strike that nice balance in your life. And so there, there's, you know, maybe some encouragement, but also some concern that you're taking things too far. You don't want to go crazy with this. You don't want to go overboard. And yet, if what God says is true, that we have an opportunity to change eternity, that the things of, of eternal value that we invest in here will endure into the next life, then it, it only makes sense that we would devote ourselves completely to that. That that would be the number one value in our lives. Well, <clears throat> I think this leaves us with several decisions. You know, for some of us, uh, we may come out of here saying, you know, I don't need Christ. 
Maybe you don't have a relationship with God and you're just like, I'm going to carve my own path. I'm going to figure things out myself. And, um, you know, if God is real and he offers us heaven, then I'm going to just, you know, try, try to go in there and say I've done the best that I could and I think I'm a good person, so maybe you should let me in. Well, according to God, that's not enough. You can do that. But according to the Bible, we're all falling short of God's standard that he sets. And um, he says that the only way for us to gain entrance into heaven is to, is to receive the forgiveness that he offers through Christ. And so you could, you could say that. God's not going to impose himself upon you. But he offers you an opportunity to turn to him and receive his forgiveness. Another decision would be, I'll take the gift of Christ, but I'm going to hold out for myself. I'm just, I'm just going to live this life for myself. And you can do that. That's fine. But you're missing out on incredible opportunities that God has given to you. And I guarantee you, at the end of your life, you're going to look at all the things that you squandered your money and your time on, and there's going to be a lot of regrets. Uh, I've, met, I've met people who have come to the end of their lives serving God. And the only regret that they had was that they hadn't given more to serving God. Finally, you have an opportunity to go all out for Christ. You know, and that doesn't mean that you have to be some weirdo fanatic, but it means that you prioritize the things of God, that you set that as your number one value in life. You know, which includes serving and loving people, which means uh, prioritizing relationships over money and things. And if you do that, you're not going to end your life with regrets, saying, man, I just squandered everything on following God. You know, I, I can't say that I've sacrificed that much for God, but, you know, the things that I have given over to God, I don't regret giving those things away. I never have. All right. Why don't we just uh, end our time here by turning to God. Thanks to you provide a model like Paul who suffered uh, shame and people hurling abuse at him because of uh, his dedication to you. And um, we pray that we would heed um, his uh, call to be imitators of him and um, that we, over time, can become more and more radical in our devotion to you and um, thanks that, you know, serving you doesn't mean that we end up looking like, you know, religious nutcases, but that um, it just means that we are uh, people who prioritize loving people and relationships and prioritize uh, spiritual things over material things. And I pray that that would reflect in our lives and be attractive to the people around us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.